Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Katie Fulham-Harris, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Accountable Care Strategy for Maine Health in Portland, Maine. Katie oversees the development, implementation, and coordination of state and federal advocacy on behalf of the Maine Health System, and also leads the development and implementation of strategy that supports improved access and value for healthcare consumers and purchasers, and the alignment of incentives for providers in the Maine Health System. Prior to coming to Maine Health, Katie worked in a variety of not-for-profit, government, and for-profit institutions. In this podcast, Katie and I discuss her career journey, then transition to talk about what it's like to manage government relations and health policy for the largest integrated health system in the state of Maine, and the challenges of trying to move a large system towards paying for value. We conclude with a discussion about influence and leadership. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, especially around the recent evolution of health policy. I think early careerists in particular will get a sense of the importance of integrating proactive government relations in a large healthcare organization. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Katie Fulham-Harris. Welcome to The Forge, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So you went to Columbia University as an undergrad. Right. Uh, what did you major in? I majored in English, okay. English literature. Okay. Um, and did you know at that time that you wanted to, to work in policy? I knew at that time that I did not want to work on Wall Street, Okay. which was where a large portion of my class went. And I knew at that time that I did not want to be in the science realm, which is where another large portion of my class went. So I ended up thinking that writing skills would be good for me to use in any sort of job that I that I moved forward with. I definitely, I almost minored in poli-sci, so okay. policy was always of great interest to me. Okay. One of your early jobs was working in government relations for Planned Parenthood of Northern New England as the Director of Public Affairs. Now, Planned Parenthood is kind of a political lightning rod, gets a lot of attention. It does. What does Planned Parenthood, and in particular Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, actually do? Planned Parenthood of Northern New England actually provides preventive care, cancer screening, annual exams, birth control to women, particularly women of who have few means. In a comprehensive way, they provide accessible, accessible both from an individual perspective as well as a geographic perspective, care across the continuum of women's health. And what was this early job that you had? What was it like? And how did it shape your future interests? Oh, that's a great question. So the job was amazing opportunity to really learn about women's health, to learn about health policy, and to learn about a lot of the challenges that, that Planned Parenthood and 
some lightning rod kinds of organizations face as it relates to policy. I happened to work there at a time when there was a great deal of strife occurring in the choice community. There And one of the things that occurred while I was there was the Brookline shooting. I was responsible at that point for doing some of the communications, the external communications, working with the media. So I had a, an amazing view into, into the lives of people who, who were impacted directly by the protesters, by the violence that was brought forth by a very few people, but that impacted a lot of people. And it gave me a great empathy for, particularly for women in rural areas who do not have access to a continuum of healthcare services otherwise. I think actually things have improved in terms of access to healthcare since, since those days. It was the early 90s. But it was very eye-opening to feel the the pain that they felt as they were trying to access services and having the attention that was placed on those services they were trying to access. You were working both in public affairs as well as government relations. What does that mean? What is government relations and what did you do in that role? I served as a lobbyist. Okay. Um, so I actually promoted our policies at the State House. We actually passed a bill that ensured that women had protection and access to abortion services as needed, the, the Choice Act, I think it was called at that point. And I also worked very extensively to prevent unnecessary barriers from being passed that would have made it even more difficult for women to access health care services. They were many of the same laws that we or bills that we continue to see today were promoted at that point in time, such as requiring minors to have a parent sign off before they were able to get birth control, requiring, which we actually had now in Maine, got a law passed to prevent prevent that from happening, 24-hour waiting periods before women could access abortion services, those kinds of things that really haven't, unfortunately, disappeared, although with the Supreme Court's recent decision, they may. What skills did you learn in this job? I learned a host of skills from a technical perspective, a lot of media training, um, lobbying skills, how to listen. So something that's really important to my work and my career has been having an understanding of what the what individuals who have differing opinions from those that I'm promoting are. And I learned that in that job. I also learned that there is always a small segment of individuals on both sides of an issue who won't listen and for whom you are never going to reach consensus. But so, but it, but from a skills perspective, it really was having the ability to process the information and, and try to understand where people are coming from and why they're coming from that place. So you were at Planned Parenthood for about three years, and then you moved to the main department of mental health, mental retardation, and substance abuse services as the assistant to the commissioner. So in this role, you moved from, from a nonprofit, Planned Parenthood, yes. to a government agency. How was that experience different for you? <laughs> it was night and day in many respects, although there were definitely similarities. So the role that I played at the department was similar. I had responsibility for 
working with the press at a very volatile time in in particularly the mental health world in Maine. I also had responsibility for um, serving as the liaison to the legislature. I don't think we technically called it lobbying when you mm. work for a government agency, but mm -hmm. um, liaison to the legislature, and I was a liaison to the governor's office. So in, in that capacity, the department is obviously much more diverse in the issues that it has to contend with than Planned Parenthood. And I was responsible for working with our team, internal team or on budget issues in the legislature. Our budget had to go through both the vetting process of the governor's office and then get passed ultimately by the legislature. So it was, I learned the skills I learned at Planned Parenthood were exceedingly helpful in the role at the department, but the department role was definitely far more comprehensive and a whole new set of issues mental health, substance abuse, and developmental disabilities, as what then called mental retardation, was an evolving world at that point, still is to some, to some degree. Uh, we wrap it all into something called behavioral health services now, and we were downsizing our former, well, former Augusta State Mental Health Institute, we were operating under a consent decree. We closed a long-standing, I'll call it residence institution, where we housed people with mental retardation while I was there. And the development of the community-based service system was, a, we were under constant pressure to uh, develop it and to try to save money at the same time. It was a wild ride and it was incredibly interesting also provided me with a great look at how you build, how you work under under a great deal of pressure, and how you build service delivery systems. A lot of the services that we created in that time continue to exist today. What would you say were the critical lessons you learned from that that experience? I would say that the the lesson I learned from Planned Parenthood about listening to people got magnified by about tenfold when I went to the department and the importance of bringing teams of people together with differing perspectives to provide input into decisions that are being made and to own some of those decisions that are being made. When you're dealing with a governmental agency, it might have the power to do to communities, but you will not ever be successful if you don't ensure that the communities own that which you are creating at some level, or at least most of the community. There will certainly be times when you have NIMBY kicking right. in and, right. and it Not may be important, here. right, <laughs> sorry, yeah, may no, be no. important to push the envelope a little bit to ensure equity and equality, but it is also equally important to work collectively with the communities to have ensure that you're hearing what they have to say about um, whatever services that you're developing. Listening to people who have behavioral health issues, whether they be mental illness or developmental disabilities or substance use disorder, and, and ensuring that you're creating a system that works for them is paramount to ultimate success. So I know around this time, New Hampshire was going through a lot of the same kind of volatility, and right. I think we saw some significant court cases that 
had, where the state was told, hey, you're not you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in terms of providing the services in the community as you deinstitutionalize. Was Maine seeing that same kind of pressure? The consent decrees that okay, I referenced were exactly about. that. So okay. the, the court issued edicts and actually ended up uh, appointing a courtmaster in both consent decree around uh, mental health services and a consent decree around behavior, developmental disabilities, services for people with developmental disabilities. One of those consent decrees exists today. <laughs> it's this, the state is still operating under the what is, was known as the AMHI consent decree, which was the consent decree for people, adults with mental illness, who um, it started as adults with mental illness who were deinstitutionalized, um, but it expanded to really be a consent decree that operates to ensure that there is enough funding and access to community supports for people with be with behavioral health issues, mental illness in particular. Fascinating. So you left the department in 2000 and went to be the director of development for Sweetser. So you stayed in the mental health field at this point. I did, yes. Maine, this is, so Sweetser is Maine's largest mental health services agency. How did, uh, what did you do as the director of development, what is what is that role? <laughs> so Sweetser actually started as a children's home okay. for orphans and children who didn't have another place to go, and they operated a pretty significant fundraising arm to ensure that the services that they provided, as they transitioned over time and and started serving adults and as best practice changed over time. Sweetser's service delivery moved from strictly serving children to, and in a residential setting, to providing community-based services and providing a comprehensive array of, of services for children and adults with, who are, have mental illness in particular. But they, so fundraising was pretty key component of ensuring that the children in particular had access to care, whether it be treatment, but also food and shelter and and clothes. So their fundraising supported a whole host of things for children, some for adults as well, but it was primarily for, for kids and making sure that kids who had challenges were able to have those challenges met. So, so, so met. development refers to fundraising. Correct. Right? Okay. Yes. So that's not something you had been doing prior to that. That is clearly not something <laughs> I had done prior to that, no. So what what was that experience like shifting into that? You know, that was really interesting because fundraising is very methodical and formulaic a little bit. Okay. You certainly need to be innovative in the way you go about it, but there are things that you do. There's a pro there are processes in place which are really important to follow if you're to be a successful fundraiser. Entirely different than the chaos, chaotic world of working in the government um, where you never had enough resources to do anything that you wanted to accomplish. Right. I'm familiar with that. I, I have found that it helped me really learn how to do process, and I also managed a team. Um, okay. So I learned management skills there. Was this the um, first time you'd been a supervisor? It was the first time I was a direct supervisor. Okay. And it was, so I loved doing that. I loved building a team and um, being and accomplishing things. And I, I was there for a year. I wasn't yeah. there for a right. long period of time. But the, working as a manager in that teamwork was something I really enjoyed. 
So you, you, as you said, you left Sweetser in 2001 and you joined the Maine Development Foundation yes. where you were a program director. What is the Maine Development Foundation? What do they do? So the Maine Development Foundation is a really interesting nonprofit that was formed to provide help to the government in areas of research primarily and some training both for government officials but also for the business sector and it it's a, serves as an intermediary that really allows that does research and allows govern, government to intersect with the business sector primarily the main development foundation had a long standing really neat program I'll call it where they developed quality indicators for the business um, and economic indicators for the business community and business climate to to really measure how we were doing as a as a state in the business world. That and and our how our entire economy was working or not working. They got a Robert Wood Johnson grant, working in collaboration with the governor's office, to develop a similar set of indicators for healthcare specifically, and I was hired to run that grant. It was a fascinating opportunity because we, I worked in the King administration at the department and his philosophy is very team oriented and bringing all the players to the table. He still, as senator, <laughs> does this today, listening to all the perspectives and, and working out the solutions through that process. And we used a very similar process at the Maine Development Foundation and brought together a diverse group of leaders from across the sectors. It was not healthcare heavy at all. We had a school superintendent. We had people who are chair of the board of a Brunswick Economic Development Committee. So a whole host of different people. One of the co-chairs was a high up official at Bath Ironworks. But we pulled together a set of indicators, performance indicators for the healthcare system that were based on quality, cost, and it, instead of using access, we talked about having people engage in the healthcare system. I think engagement was the third area that we identified. And those indicators, we didn't have a lot of data in those days to actually support the indicators. So the project didn't last, didn't survive beyond the development of the initial set, but a lot of the indicators that we identified are still used and some in our contracts today. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it okay. was a very interesting project. So up until this point, you'd worked in three nonprofits and in a government agency. Yeah. And in 2003, you left the Maine Development Foundation and joined Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield as the Director of Government Relations. This is in Maine. This is in Maine. Okay. Because we also have an anthem in New Hampshire. Yes, and, same, and same kind of anthem. All yep, yep. Yeah, but, but it's the local... It's the local version, uh, yeah. State, ...state portion of the organization. So Anthem is a for-profit organization. Yeah, that it is. Um, yeah, and I hear in your voice, it's quite different than working either for a nonprofit or a, or a government agency, I'm taking. Can, can you talk about the differences? <laughs> different in many, many aspects. The... So I would say that the biggest difference is that you are, you, you have to pay attention to Wall Street. I mean, you, you, ever, anything that you say that gets reported in the press can be turned into a stock price change. 
that is a dramatically different perspective than one has when one works at a local agency. And why do you care about that? Um, and, and you have to care about that because you are working for an organization that is publicly traded. Okay. And it is um, pretty important to all who, uh, I mean, as, as publicly traded company, it relies upon Wall Street and its performance on Wall Street to provide the capital to invest in the initiatives that it's seeking to imp- use to, to grow. So I loved working at Anthem. I will say that it provided, it was very dedicated to its employees and to team teamwork. We had tremendous access to resources that you don't have in a lot of the other sectors. With those resources come, comes accountability, which is really important. But it was... It was an organization, as a Blue Cross plan, an organization that was dedicated to better serving its customers. And that's something that goes across any sector that you're in. I think that was very important. They really made a tremendous effort to ensure that their customers were happy. We used to call it sort of the LL bean of customer service. Their beans is is so well known for, for its customer service. Anthem really did do a lot to ensure that its customers were provided for. It was a period of, when I was there, it was a period of great growth for Anthem. They merged with WellPoint, they, which was a significantly larger company actually, it was based in California. And so we had a lot of change while I was there. Um, they invested a lot in change management and trying to ensure that it didn't impact the local states to the degree that it could have certainly and it's it's important to have to understand how important jobs are to those it's ultimately people running those businesses and those people care about the people who work for them and anthem was very dedicated to ensuring that its workforce was taken care of in maine and they did and the they did everything they could to support a strong workforce here and your role, again, was Director of Government Relations. Why does an insurance company have a Director of Government Relations? <laughs> because in the broad scheme of things, most people view insurance companies as being the answer to, or, to fixing their woes around health care. So the number of pieces of legislation that get submitted to that would have a direct impact on people's lives oftentimes negatively without their necessarily even understanding it creates a volatile environment for insurance companies in the leg- at the legislature they rely upon government relations in a significant way to ensure that they can have a steady business climate in which to to do their jobs and to to do their business and to provide the coverage for their insureds that their insureds need. Can you give an example of, of maybe legislation or, or a policy that you worked on while you were there that, that was important? So I can give, yes, I certainly can. I would say probably the most important piece of policy that I worked on when I was there that was a multi-year effort was the Dirigo Health Plan, which was a predecessor a predecessor to the Affordable Care Act. 
So Maine had its own mini version of the Affordable Care Act, along with Massachusetts, actually, and okay. it was quite similar to Massachusetts. I worked in my capacity, Anthem, I worked both at the legislature to try to shape that legislation to be such that insurers would be interested in providing it, and then worked internally at Anthem to get to convince them to actually attempt to provide it. And they did. They actually went after the RFP and gained the RFP for the first year. And we were the only insurer that was interested in partnering with the state to provide insurance to a group of individuals who needed subsidies to in order to afford health insurance. And it was a very interesting experience. I learned a lot of business sort of philosophy through that through that work. And I also learned quite a bit about the challenges of partnering with a, st- with a state on something that the state feels quite passionately about when you have, when it's only one of a number of initiatives that you are uh, engaged in and not necessarily when you, not necessarily that which is going to be most important on the priority list for the, for the company, for the company. But it was a great oppor- learning opportunity. I think actually Derigo provided the state with a lot of the infrastructure that made partnering or the Affordable Care Act as successful, the exchange as successful as it was when it got offered in the state. So in 2008, you joined Maine Health as the Senior Director for Government and Employer Relations. So before we talk about your roles since 2008, can we talk a little bit about Maine Health for listeners who are not familiar with the organization? Absolutely. What is Maine Health? Maine Health is Maine's largest integrated health care system that incorporates its, well, it's eight hospitals in Maine and one in New Hampshire. Uh, Memorial Hospital in New Hampshire is part of our system. We have about 950 physicians that are employed by Maine Health. We also have an accountable care organization that includes independent physicians. So the total number of physicians is about 1,400. We have three affiliate hospital systems. I call them local health care systems that are part of our organization as well. We have a home health agency and we have an integrated behavioral health organization. That component is actually, I'm not sure it's unique to the country, but it's rare in the country to have the integrated behavioral health component of a, of a healthcare system that provides con- community-based services, crisis services, and we have an inpatient psychiatric hospital. So Maine Health serves Maine's 11 northern, uh, southernmost counties as well as one county in Carroll County in New Hampshire, and we are very committed to our mission, which is working together so our communities are the healthiest in America. How did Maine Health come about? Maine Health was the brainchild um, of a couple of people here who saw the importance of collaboration amongst healthcare providers. We live in a world in which resources are scarce and we have a wide geography to serve in Maine and collaboration is really paramount to ensuring that our patients have access to the highest quality care possible. From that, from that initial sort of thought process, 
which I think involved only one or two hospitals, small hospitals initially with Maine Health. Our health system has obviously grown pretty dramatically and we're seeing we're seeing the integration of healthcare delivery across the country now sure. in a pretty significant way. You mentioned geography. Yes. How is that? Tell, talk a little bit about geography and how geography impacts your mission. So geography and Maine's demographics impact our mission pretty substantially. We are, as an organization that's committed to the health of our communities, we serve a lot of rural areas. We have a 650-bed teaching hospital at May Medical Center, so it's tertiary care level one trauma center with really high-quality specialists and subspecialists that people will go to for from states all around. We also have critical access hospitals that are 25-bed facilities that are tr really integrated into their communities, provide not just the healthcare delivery in their communities, but also, importantly, jobs with benefits in many of the rural communities. Maine is the oldest state in the nation, and we also have a, a high level of uninsurance. We chose not to participate in the Medicaid expansion yet. We also have a high level of government-funded individuals who are on government programs whether they be Medicare or Medicaid, particularly for the elderly because we're poor. So we have challenges related to the fact that we're a large ge ge geography. We're old, therefore have a high when occurrence. You, old, you mean the population? Population is old, yeah. yes, sorry. Not, not <laughs> me health, but yes, yeah. we're an old state and we are a poor state. And what that adds up to is significant challenges. We know from social determinants of health that income levels, education levels really impact people's ability to take care of themselves, to eat well, to exercise, to lead healthy lives. And we have a strong commitment at Maine Health to providing what some people might view as public health kinds of services, but they are population-based services around things like tobacco treatment and cessation and vaccinations, diabetes care, things. We are very committed to working within our communities to provide the necessary services and supports to ensure that people can lead healthier lives. Not easy in our old, poor, and rural state. Yeah, and those are things that are generally not well compensated. That is absolutely correct. So when I say we, we are committed, um, we are a rare health system that is, we actually measure ourselves based, we do a whole health index report every year with a series of measures and measure ourselves on and our success based on how we how well we achieve those kinds of very difficult measures, many of which have little, some, but not, but not a lot of impact by the medical system. These are not things that are you, you go to a doctor to fix. They really involve people participating in their own health and engagement. So we have, as I mentioned, things like vaccinations, campaigns, 
around improving vaccinations, childhood vaccinations, working with the provider community and providing education and tools to them. Um, we also have a, a unique, really neat program that provides primary care and case management support for, for adults who fall below, I think it's 250% of the poverty level who are uninsured. So they have direct access to their own primary care physician and to the supports through case management to help them navigate the system. We found that that has significantly contributed to a reduction in emergency department utilization and inpatient utilization for that group of individuals. We're committed to doing the right thing for our patients, regardless of their health status, their income level, or their insurance status. We'll talk some more about policies as we go along, but let's let's now talk a little bit about your jobs here. Uh, so you came in 2008 as the Senior Director of Government and Employer Relations. Was this government relations role similar or different to the one you had at Anthem and maybe Planned Parenthood? <laughs> yes, it's different. No question about it. My government relations role here, I am representing a series of members as opposed to an entity. So quite different in that regard. I when you say members, members. So Maine Health as organizations. organizations. So Maine Health as an integrated healthcare system is is made up of these local healthcare systems, and they are independent. They're part of us, but they all have their own balance sheets, and they all have represent their communities and have their own sets of needs. So we developed processes to vet and to to ensure that the positions that we're taking on pieces of legislation reflect all of our, our, our communities. Also f around clinical kinds of issues, making sure that, I mean, it was the first time I'd really jumped into the broad array of clinical issues that the legislature has to deal with. Lyme disease, opioids being a big one this past year, vaccinations, vast array of, of topics that they contend with. And working with developing processes internally to making to make sure that we are reflecting best practice in whatever positions that we're taking and working i often don't testify directly anymore i rely upon the experts in the system to testify and work with them that's a, again it's a variation on what i used to do at anthem or so coordinating the effort now rather than coordinating and overseeing as opposed to necessarily doing specifically myself you also have the role of employer relations. What does that mean? So we, it's evolving. Okay. <laughs> employer relations is evolving. Um, we had been members for a long period of time with an organization called the Maine Health Management Coalition that has is a collaborative effort between employers and plan sponsors, purchasers of health care, providers, and then insurers. We recently decided to leave that that organization and my role around employer relations was working primarily with the employers within that within that organization in developing opportunities to around transparency opportunities to better inform their patients and their decision making as purchasers to make sure that we were providing them with the data 
and that the policies they were promoting made sense to our providers as well, so that there was a good collaborative conversation going on. And the coalition has a pretty robust website that provides a series of indicators, healthcare measures and indicators and cost quality and access and with an emphasis on quality. And we would help to shape which indicators got put on and how they got placed on that website. The role as it evolves now is really working collaboratively or directly with the, the employers and making sure, and as we are looking at changing the way we get paid for healthcare, providing them with opportunities to, to shape, to, to work collaboratively to shape um, new models of payment and transparency around healthcare. It's, it's evolving, as I mentioned, but we do have some employers that we're seeking to develop new type, types of partnerships with. And what that ends up looking like over time, I can't tell you today, but we're hopeful that we are going to work together to ensure that the financial incentives that we have as a provider system and that our physicians have as direct providers are aligned with the goals of improving the value of healthcare for individuals and not just pay, getting paid for producing widgets, which is what we have. Fee for service. Fee for service, which is underlies all, all of the system still today. So you were promoted to vice president of government and employer relations in 2012. How did those responsibilities change when your title changed from senior director to vice president? There, there were a few additions to my requirements. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember from that, from the various you, evolution. Let me just throw in that, and then you were promoted in 2013 to I, I senior think, vice yeah, president. Th that, that's where the big evolution okay. took place. So okay. uh, when I was promoted to SVP, I took on for a period of time a role of staffing our accountable care organization. Okay. And I also uh, worked in the contracting realm as we were developing what I'll call value-based contracts through with our ACO. So I worked collaboratively with our with our accountable care organization, and we were working with the either third-party TPAs, third-party administrators, and or insurers, of which there's a complete overlap in Maine. So uh, it's the same organizations okay. providing the TPA services and the insurance services to develop contracts that started down that path of incentivizing us to, to provide, to do the right thing. And part, sometimes those contracts would include reimbursement for care management for patients who have high levels of need. And in turn, they would hold us accountable for meeting cost targets and, and quality targets along the way. So that was a, I, I embarked upon that for a period of time and helped served on a steering committee in which we identified a real challenge that we had in having too many organizations that were doing similar things that weren't totally aligned. We had a PHO, a physician hospital organization. We had an ACO of which there was a great deal of overlap, but they were they had separate governance structures. And then we had a physician Community Physicians of Maine, which is the physician arm of the PHO, which again had its own governance structure. And 
very cumbersome to try to actually process okay. um, any of the work that we did. So we brought those, we worked over the period of about a year and developed a new governance structure, brought those together and collapsed them into one single governance entity now called Maine Health ACO or MAKO. And when that occurred, the PHO took over the function of staffing MAKO. So I am still engaged in some of the contracting efforts, but I'm really starting to focus more on working directly with the employers. And we have someone else who I bring the contracting questions to and, and he'll sort of execute the actual contracts. You mentioned value-based contracts. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and yeah. what does what does it's, what do they look like? That's, <laughs> well, I mean, that's I a great question. Yeah. So, um, what are you trying to accomplish right. by, by this? So, the, what they look like. So, we're paid through this fee-for-service world. So, we're paid per visit at, or per code, as it might be. And then we these value-based contracts that lie on top of the the fee-for-service contracts hold accountable our system, primarily primary care providers right now are sort of the basis of, of it, for achieving quality targets. So di the level of your, the number of your patients who have diabetes, whose hemoglobin levels are X, Y, or Z. And they will actually pay us based on our ability to achieve targets for those quality measures. Or there are disincentives associated with that so if you miss these, if you miss these, you will not achieve, or you might actually end up. You don't. We don't pay money back, but you you leave money on the table if you don't achieve them. And the same goes for cost. So they will track the total cost of care spent per member per year, assuming you're making those quality targets. All of them have quality as the most important element. But if you're achieving the quality and you achieve cost targets, then we may be able to, for example, share in savings. So if we were supposed to, if our target was $100 per member per month, and we come in at $90 per member per month, we can share with the plan sponsor, the employer, in that $10 per member per month savings. That's an example. Another example would be we actually take financial risk. So if we come in at $110 per member per month, we actually have to pay some of that, the difference between the 100 and the 110 back to the plan sponsor. Okay. So it, it's starting to move the system to, and, and our providers to think about the total quality of care provided and the total cost of care that's provided to our patients and to look at it in a at a higher level than the individual patient, but looking at population health. What does it take to ensure that all your patients with diabetes have the right tests at the right time, have the tools they need to self-manage their care, and have the supports they need when they need them if they have questions or if they need help with something? So we know that, that chronic disease is a significant part of the cost and overall health status of our population. And so the foci tend to be chronic disease around the quality and cost targets initially. So you had said earlier that Maine Health has historically made, in, made investments in public health kinds of Absolutely. areas like 
diabetes management. Yep. So now these these value-based contracts will actually provide you some reward for the work that you're trying to do. Well said, absolutely. We actually had at our PHO care management, a whole care management structure long before uh, it became sort of de rigueur. Um, and <laughs> we, cool we were the cool kids and we were providing our, our physician's offices with access to care managers, nurse care managers who would work with patients who had high levels of need. Um, that has become an, uh, more ubiquitous across our system now. Um, but that was something that we, we've had in place for a long period of time. And as a result of that and a lot of the initiatives, when you look at national data, we have very low spending per member per month or per member per year. Our, the cost of delivering care in, in this region is, is low compared to other parts of the country. Maine Health publishes its strategic plan online, so I had a chance to skim through that a little bit. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw was a reference to the idea that that you are participating in an accountable care movement. What does that phrase mean? I think it, it really is that value-based purchasing concept that we just talked about, but it but it's incorporating the Institute for Healthcare Improvements triple aim. Mm-hmm. So they they came out with the triple aim. I was going to ask you what, quite a what few does years that ago. What, what so does that that's really it's it's a it's always shown with a triangle. So one side of the triangle is patient experience that what the in, how the individual patient experiences the system. Uh, another side of the triangle is population health and quality and it, from a broad perspective, what is the quality of care provided to a population that you're. Sur- excuse me, that you're serving. And then the third side of the triangle is cost. Um, How are you doing this and maintaining the lowest cost possible? So so in a fee-for-service world, providers are incentivized to provide as much care as they possibly can, as much expensive care as they possibly can, because they make more money doing that. When you, what we're trying to move towards in, in an accountable care model is ensuring is changing that paradigm so that we're incentivized to provide the right care at the right place at the right time and so our patients have the best the access to the best quality highest value care that is possible and that requires changes in the way we deliver care and it requires changes in the way that we're paid for that care and that's really what what we're talking about. And that's a shift that's occurring across the country. How has the passage of the Accountable Care Act affected Maine Health? I love that you called it the Accountable Care Act. It's the Affordable Care Act. Sorry, the Affordable Care Act. No, no, I called it the Accountable Care Act for ages. So it's actually- At least they didn't call it Obamacare. No, I I don't even mind that. I think he did a good job at embracing it. How has it changed? We were headed down this path, but they have ratcheted up the the path, sort of the level of activity that's occurring. So I'd say there there are so many pieces of the Affordable Care Act. It's hard to identify one, but mm. at a broad level, the Affordable Care Act has provided access through the exchanges to individuals who are struggling to to afford health care. We have not seen the full value of that because Maine chose not to participate, or at least thus far has chosen not to participate in Medicaid expansion. 
and that has left a significant number of patients without access to affordable care. We have, because we're low income, we have a lot of people, particularly people with pretty high levels of healthcare needs, who can't access health insurance. They, they fall below 100% of the poverty level, and they cannot not, no one would suggest they could afford it on their own, and they do not have access through Medicaid. And even though they could potentially qualify for subsidies? They can't qualify for subsidies. Well, no. So the exchange is limited to people between between 100% of the poverty level uh, okay, and right. 400% of the poverty level. So because so, they're below, they're... So interesting. So they're caught in a window. Of, they are caught in a window, and Maine had actually expanded access through a waiver back in the Dirigo days, <laughs> prior to uh, I think it was in 2002, 2003, and we actually we were the only state that not only didn't expand Medicaid, but we actually moved backwards and we reduced eligibility for Medicaid in the state. So we actually had people who lost coverage when the exchanges <laughs> took effect. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's very unfortunate. So, and there are most vulnerable. I mean, but we have seen another group of patients who are accessing um, health insurance through the subsidized exchange who, who otherwise would not have access. And that's terrific. It's great to see that group. And they fall between 100% and 400% of the poverty level. Very importantly, a piece of the Affordable Care Act that people don't know a lot about unless you're in this healthcare world is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services created something called the Center, uh, called, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which was part of the Affordable Care Act. And that organization has done a lot around developing models of care, um, pilots, if you will, that they have spread throughout the the country and different organizations have applied for and been part of some of these pilots to test different models um, of whether it be payment reform um, or or uh, delivery system reform. A lot of it primarily payment reform. So we are part of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is the which is a test pilot that is for our Medicare population that is starting to hold us accountable and tracking the cost and quality. It's a shared savings program, which I described earlier. And if we are able to meet a benchmark or exceed a benchmark in terms of the cost of care and the quality of services delivered to our Medicare population, then we can share in the savings. The first performance year, we were incredibly successful, and I think we were the fourth or fifth most successful in the country. The second year, we came within the benchmark, so we didn't actually meet or, or exceed the benchmark to share in savings, but we were within the, there's a, a window, and we were within that window, and we're currently, um, haven't received the results from our third performance year yet. So that process, they, they have a number of other, that's the most conservative, actually, of the different pilots that they have out there. And there are a number of others that are really pushing the envelope to to encourage uh, health systems to start to take what we call downside risk, financial risk for the, the care of populations they're serving. So this is kind of like the example you gave before of with $100 you pay back. per member per month. And you... Yep. Okay. Exactly. And, and that is 
There are far fewer health systems participating in that, but in those models, but, but it's great to see how it's working. And actually, Eastern Maine Healthcare Systems in Maine is one of those organizations that is participating. At the same time, the Affordable Care Act is absolutely requiring that all physicians and hospitals, first hospitals and now physicians start to pay attention to quality and to the value of care delivered. And they have developed mandatory programs for hospitals that require hospitals to report on quality and cost measures. And they get paid based on how they how they do on those measures. Things like hospital-acquired conditions is a big piece. So infections, they track the number of infections. And you actually don't get paid your reimbursement rate is changed based on how you how you do on those measures. They are just in the process of implementing similar programs for physicians. So all physicians, all physicians, mandato- mandatory program will participate in a program in which they are reimbursed at some level based on the quality of care that they delivered. Is this part of MACRA? MACRA. This is exactly. the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. Right. Okay. It's a big deal. What is a day in the life of Katie Fulham Harris like? <laughs> Never a dull moment. Okay. I rarely do the same thing twice in the course of a week. I mean, it's okay. it's which is what I love about it. Yeah. Um, so during the legislative session, I might be in Augusta one day. I might have meetings with employers another day. I might be developing a presentation a third day third and fourth, it often takes me a while. And I might spend the fifth day working on our opioid strategy um, to develop a standardized approach to um, addressing the opioid use crisis across our system. I have, I sort of am a half an inch deep and a mile wide in a lot of the work that I do, but I get very engaged. I was always a learn for the test kind of person. Uh-huh. So whatever the issues of the moment are, I dive right in. And if you ask me five years down the road what the specifics were, I'll probably never be able to tell you. But okay. but that's... And how much do you work with the affiliate organizations when you're doing something like an opioid crisis plan, so, for example? That's a great question. So from a strategic perspective, we bring our affiliates in around all of the community health improvement activities that we are engaged in. So they're not brought in, they're not part of our contracting or our financial discussions, but community health improvement includes our affiliates or they're at least invited. So this opioid work that we're doing, work group across our entire system, clinicians from our affiliates as well as each of our local healthcare systems have come together to develop a plan to address education, prescribing, and treatment for opioid use disorder across, in a standardized way across our system. Okay. Uh, Which will be, we we have a dearth of providers right now. Uh, We have a crisis. We had 272 deaths in 2015 in the state of Maine, and that's unacceptable. It's a public health crisis, and we own, it's the first public health crisis that the healthcare system 
it very inadvertently has has a role has played a role in in creating through prescribing practices so it, this is an opportunity to to rectify that and to better serve our patients when do you interact with say somebody like Patsy April who's the chief operating officer of one of your larger facilities I mean when does she call you up on the phone and say hey I need to talk to you about X <laughs> whenever they're having a struggle dealing with the regulatory world whether it be in Augusta or Washington I often get brought into those conversations or if a legislator calls them and has questions about something I'll get brought in I work very closely with the communities around the employer community and and how we're best meeting their needs I would and, and then occasionally on something like this when I'm working on a project that's sort of a one-off project um, we will interact very closely with the, the local communities. Do they retain, so I mean like I know Southern Maine uh, has its own board still. So do they yes. retain this kind of like, is, is there a Katie Fulham Harris down at Southern Maine? It's, and, they, um, they don't. No, so we. So they rely on you for that sort of thing. And, and I have, and service. I have a colleague who, who helps support me in Augusta. So they do rely on Maine Health as one of the shared services. It's one of the benefits they get being members of our organization. They all have local people who work within their communities. So they might have, and I strongly encourage them to have relationships with their local legislative delegations. But from a strategic perspective, the strategy comes in collaboration with them, but we through the process that we have with all of our organizations. And then we provide the service. Where we also have integrated, I mean, another benefit would be where we've developed integrated human resources and we're developing integrated billing office. The most important integrated function that we have created that is key to being a system is what we're calling the SHARE program, which is a electronic health record system that will be adopted by all of our members by, I think now it's 2019 that will allow a patient to access services from any point in our system and that electronic health record will be available to anyone else, to, to other providers within the system who are caring for that patient to ensure that they have continuity of care and the full picture of, of what's going on. That will, it will also, that system will also be able to provide us the, the policy level with data to understand how our system is working. And thus far, it's been pretty siloed and very difficult to get data related to quality or cost at the individual provider level or practice level. This will allow us to start to look at where the outliers are and to start to better manage care. It's not, and, and better manage utilization. We're finding a lot of people just they don't even know what they, what their practice necessarily is. So it's a great opportunity to work collaboratively with our, our physicians and, and move the system to a new place. What are common mistakes that you see that senior leaders make in the realm of kind of government, government relations that were, you know, you get called in to maybe clean up something or, or, yeah. or work on it? Are there, are there kind of frequent areas? You know, um, or is I, wouldn't, different? I wouldn't say frequent, but I would say forgetting to bring government relations to the table mm -hmm. early enough mm -hmm. to help develop the whatever strategy you are working on, or particularly when you're reacting to something, government relations can 
can provide an, an important perspective that can prevent worse things from happening down the road, such as legislation being submitted. So much legislation is based on anecdote. Mm-hmm. So really important to bring leaders to, to understand what bad things have happened or at least perceived bad things have happened so that you can start to work on those before they get to the legislative level. I see in government relations, people don't listen enough and don't necessarily know when it's time to just say, I understand, I respect that, and we'll, we'll agree to differ here and walk away. Because burning bridges when you're in government relations is the worst thing you can do. You, you may be uh, mortal enemies with someone on a piece of legislation today and need their vote on something that they support you on tomorrow. So it's important not to burn those bridges and not to take things personally. Do you have a team now that you manage? Um, I have a person. A person, okay. <laughs> That's my team. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Um, but yes. As the Senior Vice President for Government Relations and Accountable Care Strategy, what keeps you up at night? What are you, what are you, what are you laying in bed staring at the ceiling thinking about? How we are going to continue to meet our mission of providing access to a full array of services regardless of ability to pay in a world of shrinking resources. I really worry about that we are ratcheting back the resources available, and this is primarily at the federal level through CMS, at a, at a rate that's going to make it very difficult for us as hospital-based healthcare systems to continue to provide access to primary care and substance abuse treatment and uh, the whole array of services that we've been subsidizing for a very long time for the uninsured and underinsured, and that's what keeps me up at night. Let's uh, let's transition a little bit and talk about leadership. And I realize you have a, a large team uh, that you're you're overseeing, but uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I, but really, your what I'm hearing you saying really is that your leadership is more about influence Absolutely. and relationships. Yep. So, what would you say is your leadership philosophy? My philosophy is to bring together diverse sets of opinions on whatever topic you're working on to identify where people are coming from and why and to develop a position and a strategy based on their opinions. I am really rely upon hearing the perspectives of others and a, and a broad array of perspectives to ins- to develop my own opinions about things and to understand what the implications for any given policy change may be on our organization and on our patients. What would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? I think a, a good leader really can have the vision and recognize that different people may share in that vision, but be able to hear how people's perspectives um, can feed into that vision, even if they don't immediately appear to do so, and how you can um, ensure that you're bringing all those perspectives to bear in um, implementing the vision. I think developing culture 
is incredibly important. Ensuring that you can, that people feel safe, um, and, and, but that there are still, but there are appropriate boundaries as well. Culture is something that Anthem actually did a terrific job okay. at creating a strong culture in which employees, I think, felt pretty supported. They may not always have the end result they were necessarily looking for, but ensuring that people feel heard and indeed hearing them is pretty critical. Okay, because I was going to ask you about culture. So, so you think the important aspects of organizational culture are being heard, feeling safe? Being heard, feeling safe, and having the ability to operate at the top of your skill set. And you said Anthem was particularly good at that. They were, yeah. particularly the first two, I think. Yeah, no, I'd say all three. Anthem okay. has a great promotion. I mean, it's a huge organization. Sure. So they have the ability to promote people, which which is really tough in an organization the size of Maine Health, for example. Okay. We're small. We're under 200 employees. Yeah. We have a very high-functioning group of people. Yeah. It's often hard to provide them with the opportunities that they are seeking to move within the organization. Did you have a mentor or mentors early oh, in your career? I, oh, my career. I've had mentors all along okay. the way. I would say one of my earliest and most influential mentors was a woman I trained with. I was an equestrian, and she was actually ended up getting a bronze in the, Olympi in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, phenomenal woman. And she, in Vermont, Carol Lavelle, she taught me so much about strength, about women being strong, about the importance of education. Um, she was an MIT grad, oh, wow. <laughs> among other things. Yeah. And also humility, very important. So at every step of my career, I've had different people who have mentored me. And it's hard to call others out, but I have been incredibly fortunate and feel certainly for my learning style that that has been very influential in my career. Governor King's office mm -hmm. was full of mentors, people I still rely on today. That was an incredible group of, of mentors. What does a good mentor do? A good mentor encourages you at the right times, hold, encourage, holds the reins or discourages you at the right times and provides you with the self-confidence to pursue to pursue avenues that you might not otherwise pursue also teaches i mean just you know skill sets as well but from a from a broader perspective i think those are helping to shape the way that you think the way that you process information or or intake information and recognize certainly in my case has provided me with a real understanding of different types of learning styles and the importance of trying to ensure that whatever learning style someone may have, you are able to connect with and that the information you're providing connects to that. How did you find them. these? You, sounds like you've had a lot of people who've I have been very, you and, and very fortunate. It's fabulous. How did you find them? Um, I, I, I think they often found me. Okay. I mean, I think it was just sort of, I, I didn't go seek people with yeah. the exception of Carol. So I needed, I wanted to ride with a, uh -huh. one oh, of the sure. top riders in the country and I went and found her. Yeah. But in the, the other cases, I've, I've just been fortunate to work with people 
different points in time. Erin Hoflinger at Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, she was the president of the plan. She was a terrific mentor, year or two older than I am, but she had already done so much in her career and she was, she had the self-confidence to feel comfortable building up everyone else. Her, she saw it as her mission to ensure that people moved were able to attain the skills to work the highest capacity they could work. And I think that's something I, I see is often missing from leaders. They don't necessarily have the time or the self-confidence to build people or the patience to hear what others may be saying and help, help them say it in a way that resonates with others. Erin had it. She was, she was everybody who worked with her. I mean, her team still stays in very close contact with one another. Wow, that's that's it says, saying yeah. something, yeah. That's been a number of years since you've worked. It's been yeah. a number of years, yeah. and people in different parts of the of the universe. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you mentor people now? You think? Formally, I try informally. I try. Yeah, I yeah. try. Okay. Um, we actually have a great formal mentoring program oh. that I participate in here okay. that started last year, which has been really fun. Yeah. I was so excited because my first mentee went to nursing school this year. Okay. She, she's a Bowdoin grad, and she she and I worked throughout the year um, to figure out what career path she really wanted to head down, and she is now in nursing school and loving it. So oh, great. it's really fun. Very good. And I, I do. I try to, I try to serve an informal and often in an informal way and help people think through. I think for young women in particular, it's really important for them to, to have, to bond with people who can help them navigate and understand some of the challenges that still exist in the workplace for women. Okay. Um, it's institutional it's sexism kind of stuff or you talking just, about what it can be uh, I wouldn't necessarily say institutional but I would say comments that can be made the way that women process information is often different than the way that men do so making sure they understand how to be effective in an environment that's often still run by by men who, mm -hmm. those kinds of things okay how do you come to find? People that I mean, how does it, how does it? You find somebody and say, "I want to help that person out," or how, do they come to you and say, "Would you be my mentor?" So, well, sometimes they do. Uh -huh. um, sometimes we just sort of just develop click. relationships. Okay. Yeah, I, it's not. I don't necessarily go seek people out, but yeah. if they seek me out, I always am willing, yeah. happy to to do what I can. Where do you see early careerists go wrong most in your career? Where do, mm. where do they make mistakes? <laughs> Is there a trend? Is there something kind of... <laughs> it's interesting you ask that because there definitely are trends. Okay. And when I when you say go wrong, I'm not sure that we, sh we the older generation, should be assuming that we're right. Ah, okay. There is definitely a trend around the generation they're calling the millennial generation. Right. They, they often want to have a strong work-life balance. They're not necessarily interested in working 70 hours a week and weekends, you know, on beautiful July days. I'm not sure that's wrong. Uh -huh. And so I do see there being an overconfidence sometimes among young people that doesn't serve them well. Hasn't been earned yet. Hasn't been earned yet. 
but I think it's important for the rest of us too to be a little more flexible in what it means to earn. So I go, I think about the hellish hours that residents used to have to go through in med school and how dangerous <laughs> that was. And I think, you know, that was earning their stripes. So really important for us to learn from new generations. They, they're innovating in ways that older generations can't fathom, but let's, they are the future. And so I think we just need to be cautious in making sure that we're paying attention to what they're telling us. The single thing that is cross-generational where people go wrong is not writing thank you notes after they've been interviewed. Oh, all right. I'll, let me write that down. <laughs> no, I, 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 if teaching your business school students, yeah. I have not hired people because I didn't get a thank you note from them. And when you're in, particularly in a world around relationships and the development of relationships, that is a critical element of developing relationships. So old, yeah. that's very that's old, old school. school. Right? But yes. It, yeah. And written versus uh, email. Or you know, what is it? I would it stick, it, it, I, I, I'm still a written versus email, but email would be just fine <laughs> if somebody it's wanted to take the time to do that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No Snapchats. No Snapchats. <laughs> no tweets. No tweets. <laughs> what counsel do you give early careerists most? So if someone comes in and says, you know, you see them that you think, all right, this person's pretty good. Yep. And they say, I want you to mentor me. What's the first thing you're going to tell me? What is it that you really want in life? Okay. What makes you, what it keeps you up at night with excitement? Mm -hmm. And let's develop a career path around that because it's life's too long and you really do should follow that which which really gets your motor running like so you try it. to work with them a little bit to figure that out yeah like, like your nursing yeah. you're now nursing student example absolutely I mean if that's what they're looking for so if you're so if somebody who's really early yeah. um, oftentimes they'll be looking you know do I go to law school do I go to business school let's not think about that that's like deciding what major you want if you're in liberal arts, I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference unless you already know what career path you want. Just take the time to figure out what, what excites you and then figure out a career that's going to support that. What book has most influenced your professional thinking, whether that's mm. about healthcare delivery, policy, or anything else? Oh, Gawande's, all of Gawande. I all wouldn't Gawande, say a yeah, book, but all of yeah. Gawande's yeah. work. Okay. Yeah. So Atul Gawande. Um, Atul Gawande, whatever it may be that he's he's written. Yeah, he he is extraordinary. Yeah. And yeah, that's um, just not fair. What is he like a? He's a surgeon and he writes. He, oh, for the and New he's Yorker. like thirty-five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He. So we brought him to me. Did you? Okay. He spoke to our corporators four years ago, maybe. Absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary man. Communicator. And, yeah. He is the great communicator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been recommending his work to my students as well. So, in conclusion, where would you see the opportunities? So, if you're um, not going to go into into delivery, but you want to well, work in administration, I think policy. I think well, in healthcare administration, mm -hmm. terrific opportunities there. Mm -hmm. 
particularly to, there's a shifting demographic right now, uh, certainly within our system, a lot of our senior leaders are approaching retirement age. So running a hospital, running a practice, you actually can incorporate the policy side with the actual direct patient care side, which is really exciting. There's a great opportunity to develop innovative models. And we've seen that throughout our system a little bit and definitely in the, at a national level. So I think there are great opportunities. Healthcare has excitement around the innovation and, you know, cures for cancer. I mean, there's so much that is going into improving people's lives and improving health. And there's so much more consciousness around that these days that those would be the areas that might be a terrific focus for someone who's interested in, in the world of healthcare and health policy. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. It was really nice talking to you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.